And um, Mary, you know, I, I really didn't study Mary that much. I really didn't worry too much about it. But just from studying the other parts of my faith, I came to understand how important Mary really is. Not for herself, but how she teaches us about Jesus Christ and who he is. And that's what I'm hoping that I can kind of communicate to you um, tonight. I think one of the biggest questions a lot of people have when they discern RCIA is, is this question, you know, why does Mary seem to have such a prominent role, you know, in, in the Catholic Church, in Catholic teaching? And I think, you know, first and foremost, I've already kind of given you that answer, right? The incarnation makes that possible, right? That Christ has invited the human person to participate and cooperate so fundamentally in the central salvific event of the world, right? That's kind of that's kind of the biggest reason that the Lord Himself has really invited that. So as as mother, she brings us Christ. I once had a, a woman say to me, Well, you know, it seems to me that Mary's really our first priest. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, we don't believe that. She said, no, really. She, like, she gave us Christ. And that's what we received in the Eucharist. And I said, well, there's something to that. I, I think that's really beautiful. Um, but she is really, I love this, she's the memory of the mystery of Christ. And we'll talk more about that. You know, St. Luke talks about how, you know, in, in the first paragraph of his gospel, he talks about, Witnesses from the beginning, from whom he has is telling the story of Jesus Christ. Witnesses from the beginning. Who's a witness from the beginning? Well, Mary's a witness from the beginning, right? She's the one who experienced and knew the story of Jesus Christ before anyone. Anyway, she was the first believer. She was the first disciple. And so, you know, she is called blessed among women by the angel Gabriel, who was sent by God. So those aren't his words, those are God's words. And so um, she is this memory of the mystery of Christ, not just you know, biologically, but also psychologically, right? So she's, she's deeply involved in the mystery of Christ. The other thing that's beautiful about Mary, and I think you've probably gotten this, even if we haven't said this concretely, is that she does bring together the Old and New Testament, right? Why would I say that? Why would I say that Mary brings together the Old and the New Testament? Because you know, we are, as Catholics, it, they're both very important, right? Every Mass, we have an Old Testament reading. We have Old Testament reading from the Psalms. We, so why would I say that? My new folks, what do you think about that? Why would I say that? Why does Mary bring together? What have we talked about from the Old Testament? Okay. Some of the prophecies of Christ, right? That he was, he's going to be born of a, of a virgin. And so, so we have that. Born of a virgin, we have in Genesis 3.15, God himself talks about the woman, right? I will place enmity between the serpent, you serpent, and the woman. Who's the woman? Well, it's not Eve, right? Eve already screwed up. There's this woman that's being talked about in the future, and this woman, of course, is Mary. And there is this total opposition that is placed between the serpent, the father of lies, who's full of sin, and Mary, who's full of grace. And so, so Mary really brings together for us um, the Old and the New um, Testament. Pope Benedict calls Mary Daughter Zion, which is, is, is a pretty significant title because Zion is, is really stands for Israel. And Mary is a daughter of Israel. She's a Jew. 
Um, and she's faithful, and she's waiting for the Messiah. Um, and so she becomes, for us, um, really a representation of the people of Israel in a really a very real um, self, uh, sense. Luke's gospel is also a really important gospel for Mary. We call it um, really Mary's gospel, in a sense, because it's all about the infancy narratives. All this is kind of a different terminology, I think, for Protestants. Because, you know, we, don't, you know we, we, we know all the stories, but we don't know the scripture verses and chapters. But we know the Annunciation, we know the Visitation, we know the Incarnation. We talk about things in a very different way. And the infancy narratives are really what St. Luke's Gospel is. It's from the perspective of when, you know, Jesus comes to us um, through Mary. And so, so these are some, some really great reasons, I think, why Mary has a very important role uh, in the Christian church. But I think even just, just a more simple reason, you know, is this. We are all called to a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. Um, we're called to really fall in love with him, in a sense. Um, no, not in a sense. Like, we're called to fall in love with the Lord. Like, that's what, that's what we're, we're made for. And so if you just think about that in very human terms, you know, Brett just got married, beautiful girl, Lucia. I can just imagine that when Brett started to get to know Lucia a little bit, and he turned to her one night and he said, you know, you're all on me. I don't want to meet your mother. I don't want to meet your father. I don't want to meet your brother or your sister. I don't care. I just need you. That doesn't make sense, does it? You know, what you want to do is the one you love, you want to know everything about, right? Um, you want to know who they love, who they come from, um, why they've come from that, that person, you know, what that person's all about. And that's really um, something to ponder when we think about Mary. You know, Jesus was known most deeply and intimately um, by Mary. He probably had her eyes. You know, he, he took on her human nature. And so important for us to, to really just think about that, just in commonsensical um, terms. The church gives us five doctrines on Mary to help us to understand more deeply who she is and how she plays this role out in the story of salvation history. So I'm going to hit on each one. I'm going to tell you why we believe that, how it's related to the person of Christ, um, and what that means for our existence um, today. The first is Theotokos, and that's the doctrine that I've kind of already talked about. Um, that Mary is the mother of God. This was a doctrine that was actually enunciated in the very early church, and we'll talk about that. The Immaculate Conception, very important and central doctrine of, of, about Mary. The perpetual virginity of Mary, that we believe Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. The Assumption of Mary, that Mary was assumed body and soul um, into heaven. And then lastly, Mary is our mother in the order of the first one, Mary, the mother of God. I think that I stated so ignorantly and simply to the woman who, who challenged me about Mary, you know, the theological truth about Mary, that Mary's the mother of God because she's the mother of Jesus, and Jesus is God. And so Mary is the mother of God. She, she's not the mother of his divinity. She's the mother of his human nature. But he is a person who is radically united to the divinity who is God, right? And so he didn't leave an ounce of that behind when he assumed a human nature through Mary. 
And so she's the mother, she's the mother of a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is God. And so Mary's the mother of God. Now, scripturally, I feel like this is so kind of basic, right? At the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, the angel basically says, Blessed are you, you know, you're going to be the mother of the Most High. Hail, full of grace. You know, you, you, have been, you have found favor with God. You are going to become the mother of the Most High. You know, Mary, Mary's a little baffled about the whole thing as well. She's like, wow, how can that be since, you know, I do not know man. But, but the angel is telling Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So the truth about Christ reveals the truth about Mary. That Jesus is you know, the, the son of God. And she is going to be the mother of him. And so she is the mother of God. The second person of the Blessed Trinity becomes incarnate through Mary. And Mary is his mother. So just simply, Mary is the mother of God. Now, there's, a, there's another scripture verse that I think validates this. Now, at the end of the announcement that the angel makes to Mary, the angel almost wants to kind of validate for Mary about this miraculous event. And, and she says, the, the angel says to Mary, you know, in addition to this miracle that's going to happen, that you're going to become the mother of the Most High, your cousin Elizabeth, who's like 90, is now in her sixth month of pregnancy. Because you know what? With God, all things are possible. And what does Mary do the minute the angel disappears? She goes in haste to the hill country to validate this truth about her cousin, right? And when she walks in the door, Elizabeth says, at the sound of your voice, the babe in my womb left with joy. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And so we have actually a very critical verse, kind of in this understanding about who Mary is. Who am I, first of all, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth is basically filled with the Holy Spirit, and she makes this proclamation. And she basically names that Mary is the mother of my Lord. Who is God, right? But then she says something amazing. She says, at the sound of your voice, not at the movement of the Spirit in my heart, but at the sound of your voice, Mary, the babe leapt in my womb. St. Luke is writing to a Jewish audience. And Jews that are hearing this story would automatically remember a critical story in the Old Testament. And that story is about the Ark of the Covenant. Does anybody know the story of the Ark of the Covenant? What's the Ark of the Covenant? What was, what was the whole purpose of the Ark of the Covenant? Who asked, who asked for God to dwell among them in the Old Testament? Anybody remember? Actually, it was Moses first. That's okay. But, but he really wanted God to dwell among the people and be with the people. And, and God couldn't be, right? Why? Because of sin. He said, I will smoke you if I dwell with my people. Because you guys have, have like turned away from me. You have disobeyed. You have, you have walked away from the covenant so many times. But... I want you to build for me an ark where I will dwell among my people. 
about the formation of the Ark of the Covenant, it's pretty intricate. In fact, the Ark is made of the purest gold and the most precious jewels because it needed to be an adequate dwelling place for the Lord. Now, the Ark of the Covenant traveled with the people, but in one of the battles, it was lost. It was lost in the people of Israel, but they won it back. And David is king And David is so happy that God is back among his people in the Ark of the Covenant that he does this. He leaps before the Ark of the Covenant. He dances. There's so many translations for this. Same language that, is, that Elizabeth uses. At the sound of your voice, the babe in my womb leapt for joy. So David is leaping for joy. He's dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. Does anybody remember what was kept inside the Ark of the Covenant? What were some of those important things in the Old Testament? Nick? Three, three things. Okay. <laughs> the manna that came down from heaven. Okay. It was Aaron's staff, yep. the priestly staff, and it was the Ten Commandments. So these are the three precious things that are kept in the Ark of the Covenant. So Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. She is the dwelling place of God. She doesn't just contain in her womb manna from heaven that disappears after 24 hours. She actually contains the bread of life himself. Not just the rod of the high priest, but the high priest himself. Not just commandments that are written on stone, but the one who actually wrote the commandments on stone. And so here we see that the, the Israelites are like, what? This is the Ark of the New Covenant? She is the dwelling place of God? And the child in your womb is recognizing that, and John the Baptist is, is who? He's going to proclaim the coming of the Lord, right? He's going to prepare the way. The Lord recognizes it. That's why John the Baptist was made perfect in the womb in that moment. And he was filled with the Spirit of God, and he told his mother. This is, this is pretty important. And so Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. She is the dwelling place of God. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's pretty, that's just overwhelming to me. And we talk about um, the Ark of the Covenant, even in the book of Revelation, we see this. That Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. She's an icon of the church. She's a tabernacle for our Lord, the body of Christ, the church. And so I think that is such a beautiful, beautiful kind of depiction um, for our lady. Now, so those are some of the scriptural verse, verses that kind of tell us who Mary is as it relates to who Christ is. Um, and the Council of Ephesus in 431 really addressed this, this issue um, very deeply. Because why? Because people were confused about who Jesus was. Some were saying, well, he's only human. He, you know, he's, he's just a great prophet. Um, yeah, he, he doesn't really die on the cross. Um, he's not truly God. He's the son of God in the sense that he's adopted. He's not true. There's, there were so many heresies that were going on. And then there was, there was one heretic, who was also a bishop, um, who claimed that Mary is not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus. And so the Council of Ephesus was called. 
And they said, no, 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 you're losing it. Because if Mary isn't the mother of God, then you are calling into question who Jesus is. And so Mary is Theotokos, which means God-bearer. Um, she is the mother of God, defender against all heresies. Um, there, is, um, there was a, a heresy known as Gnosticism at that time, and, and we struggle with it even today. There's, there's some Gnostic dimensions in our world today, and sometimes even in our church, in which people believe that the body is bad somehow, like God could not actually assume the human nature. Um, but what the church teaches and believes is that we're actually made for grace. You know, um, grace builds our nature. You were made to be the dwelling place of God. And Adam and Eve, that's what they were, that's what they were supposed to be. Until they turned away. And then God could no longer dwell within um, because of sin. And so, um, so again, I think there's this misunderstanding about who Mary is as mother of God. She's not the mother of his divine nature. She did not come first. She's the only mother who was in fact created by her son, and she was created perfectly. And so Mary is the mother of God. Again, in continuity with the Old Testament, um, we see an overshadowing of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Um, we see this so many places in the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis where there's a you know, an overshadowing of the water in creation. Um, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle in Exodus. Um, and so again, beautiful kind of connections between the old and the new as it relates to, to Mary. I think the other thing that we do have to recognize, and we'll see this in some of the other doctrines of Mary, is that Mary is fully human, okay? Mary, Mary is not divine. Mary is fully human, so there is a fragility here, right? And this fragility of both mother and child is reflected in the incarnation. Jesus was totally dependent upon Mary for everything as a baby, right? He's a baby. And so there's this fragility that's reflected. There's this dependence that's reflected. This is how much God loved us, that he became truly man um, in order to allow us to participate in his divine nature Questions about um, Mary, the mother of God. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Does that kind of make sense when we, I sometimes think we just speak different languages as different faiths. Um, because, you know, like I had that conversation with that woman, and she's like, well, of course I believe Jesus is God. I'm like, okay, let's take this a step further. Mary's his mother, Mary's mother of God. Um, and so I think sometimes if we just say things differently. Sometimes it's, um, it's easier to, um, to accept. Okay, the Immaculate Conception. This is the most misunderstood Marian doctrine that exists, the Immaculate Conception. A lot of Catholics even believe that the Immaculate Conception is about Jesus, that Jesus is immaculately conceived in the, in the womb of Mary. But that's not what the Immaculate Conception says. The Immaculate Conception says that by a special grace, Mary was free from original sin, from the first instant of her conception. So again, she would be prepared well um, to carry out this mission, to participate and cooperate in the mission um, that is Christ's. And so by the merits of Christ, not by the merits of Mary, by the merits of Christ, she was preserved. 
Do you remember in Genesis 3.15? I think I've said this to you about 10 times now. Genesis 3.15, after the instant of the fall, God proclaims the sending of the Son. I will place enmity, total opposition, between you, serpent, and the woman. Again, what is total opposition? It's a total difference. The father of lies is full of sin. Mary is made full of grace. And so, at that moment, God is really proclaiming that he is going to prepare a body for his son so that his son will have a dwelling place that is adequate for his coming. Because again, remember, God couldn't dwell with his people in an intimate way because of their sin. What's the scriptural foundation? Well, I've just given you one, Genesis 3.15, that God claims victory. See, God is God. In Genesis, God already is claiming victory over sin and death. He, he is outside of time. And so he takes that, those merits that he knows that he has won, um, because he knows all things. And he applies them to Mary. Because some people would say, well, how could Mary benefit from the merits of Christ when Christ has not yet been born? Yeah, but Christ is God. The father of lies is a fallen angel. There really wasn't ever really a context here, right? And so what God does is he applies those merits of Christ to the person of Mary and frees her from original sin and makes a dwelling place possible for the Son of God. So I, I mentioned Genesis 3.15, um, the Ark of the Covenant, that Mary is the new, new Ark of the Covenant. Early church fathers spoke about Mary as being younger than sin. St. Irenaeus and Justin Martyrs. And the reason we talk about the early church fathers, I think this is an important concept to kind of think about, who are the early church fathers? I mean, why are they so important? Well, they're important because they are actually the direct descendants of the apostles. And so they were taught by the people that knew Jesus Christ. And so Irenaeus and Justin Martyr talked about Mary as being younger than sin. They talked about Mary as being the new Eve that untied the knot that Eve tied in original sin. And so Mary recovers the original motherhood that Eve was called to, just as Christ recovers the original fatherhood. Now I think one of the most um, shocking um, scriptural verses that just really helped me to understand this doctrine more than any was, was this claim about fullness of grace. This is a really important one. Um, when the angel greets Mary, in the original translation, he actually doesn't even use her name Mary. It's as if he changes her name. He says, Hail, full of grace. And so it's, it's like he changes her name to full of grace. And this fullness of grace is written in a, in a particular tense. It's called a perfect participle in the present sense, something like that. But what it means is that this fullness of grace that the angel is claiming for Mary is this fullness of grace that has existed from her beginning. And so there's a sense of permanence about this fullness of grace that the angel claims for Mary. And so it's not a fullness of 
grace that occurs in that instance, in the encounter with Jesus, but it's a fullness of grace that has existed from the first moment of her being. And so Mary is full of grace, and she is so, so that she can carry out the mission that God has for her, so that she can be the dwelling place of God. Because remember, Jesus needs to be consonant with the human race. He has to be fully human. And if he took on any human nature, it would be a human nature that was tainted by sin. And so Mary needed a redeemer. She needed to be redeemed, but she's redeemed first, before sin touches her. Fulton Sheen talks about this in a really interesting way. Fulton Sheen was a bishop that was um, very popular in the 1950s. He's the only bishop that ever won a Golden Globe Award for a TV show. He's very dramatic, and you can see him on EWTN. I really love Fulton Sheen. He also wrote a great marriage book called Three to Get Married. Um, but he talks about this immaculate conception in this way. He says, just picture a busy New York City street. He was a bishop in New York. He said, and then there's this guy that's sitting out having his coffee, reading his paper, and he's in front of this open manhole where these guys are working on the streets, working on the city streets. And all of a sudden, out of the left corner of his eyes, some guy comes running out of an office building. And he is just, he is not looking where he's going. He is at full speed, and he goes right towards that manhole. In fact, he falls in the manhole. And the guy just drinking his coffee, like, what is this coffee out? The newspaper goes crazy. He goes over and he pulls the guy out of the manhole. And the guy says, wow, thank you. You saved me. He said, it's OK, man. Take it easy the rest of the day. So he goes off. The guy sits down. He tries to recover some of his coffee. Tries to go back to reading his paper. But about two minutes later, some woman comes running out of her office building, and she's late for a hair appointment, so you better get out of her way. <laughs> and she is headed right for the manhole again. But this time, the guy gets in front of her and says, Stop! You're going to fall in that manhole! And so I ask you, which of those persons was saved? Both. Both persons. One after he fell. See, that's you and I. We're saved after we've been tainted with original sin. Mary was saved before she was tainted with original sin. So she could pass on human nature, be fully consonant with you and I, so he could save us. Because remember, we talked about what it takes to recover, right? Man committed the original sin, so man has to make the reparation. But man can't make the reparation, so God becomes man, so that now the God-man can do what man could never do for himself. And Mary makes that possible in her fiat, and God redeems her first. And so Mary is free from original sin um, from the very first moment of her conception. Now, the only other time fullness of grace is used is in John 1.14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. 
Now, Jesus' fullness of grace is due to his divinity. Mary's fullness of grace is a gift. Totally undeserved, utterly gratuitous. She did nothing to deserve it. And you know, what's amazing is that all of us receive the grace we need to fulfill the mission that we're called to. At our baptism, we're full of grace. After Eucharist, we're full of grace. After confession, we're full of grace. That's pretty amazing. Now the problem is, is that because of original sin, we're tainted. And so we've been wounded. So we walk with a limp. Mary walks like this, we walk like this. Now we can get better at the limp. The limp can improve as time goes on, right? And we grow in virtue, we grow in holiness. Um, and we can become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, but only with the help of Christ. And a lot of work. Mary, before you switch the slide, yeah. your resident Latin teacher wants to just clarify. I've been reading my Vulgate as we've been going. Oh, good. But anyways, the perfect tense, and tense in Latin has to do with when the action takes place. And with perfect tense, the action not only happened in the past, but it was completed. Thank you. That's beautiful. Can you write that down and send it to me in an email so I can just study it and say it correctly next time? You betcha. Thank you so much. That's why your languages are so important. Questions about the Immaculate Conception? I know you're probably going to ponder that a little bit. We can do that in our... Yeah, go ahead. Is that fiat, and I've seen that a lot. means yes, to say yes. So Mary said yes. She gave her fiat. She gave her yes. Be it done unto me according to thy word. And fiat, it's actually more than a yes because it's more of like a submission. Like, I, I just, I surrender. Like, I surrender. I give you, like, my will, which is, is more than just a yes, really. And that's why we use that word fiat. That just means to say yes. So, so Mary, the, the church preaches in that, that Mary was more or less selected to be the vessel for his down the road. Before her birth. I mean, in Genesis 3.15, right? Yeah. It's just kind of like the church. The church has always been in the mind of God um, since the beginning. You know, when we have, we've talked about the covenants, how God is always forming a people for himself. It went from two to eight, to the tribe, to the nation, to the kingdom, to the church. Mary, too, um, has always been in the mind of God. You know, God knows everything, right? Um, and so, yeah. Yes, please. Sorry. Does it say you were in the Bible why Mary was chosen? That's a great question. I think that's one we're going to have to ask the Lord. Um, but, you know, she had, um, she definitely was going to be, um, you know, from the house of David. She was definitely going to um, have her baby in Bethlehem. She was going to be a Jew. Um, so there, there were certain things that were kind of, you know, ordained from the Old Testament. Um, that's a great question. Why this particular gap? There's some really beautiful lower T tradition stories about Mary. Um, that Mary too was born of parents that weren't supposed to have children. Her parents from tradition are known as um, Anna and Yoko. And they were elderly parents that blessed, and they, they don't say that it was but from any other way, but normal intercourse and the way children come about. 
but they were so overwhelmed with joy, and they knew she was so special that they actually gave her to the temple when she was about four years old to grow up in the temple and to learn the scriptures. And this is all lower tea tradition, but it's very fun to read. It's very there's a beautiful book. Um, one of the priests that I used to know have had a, had the book, and I I just it's beautiful, and you can find it if you Google something about you know the life of Mary. Um, it would probably come up. Um, but yeah, there's many things. Can you repeat that... the case in lower tier teaching? Lower tea tradition. So we we've talked about the fact that the the full deposit of faith is both scripture and tradition, right? So so we get this full deposit of faith. Both are equal in importance. Scripture is what the word laid down. It's written down. Tradition is everything Jesus said and did, and how the church lived out her faith. And so, um, and there are certain things that are part of um, capital T tradition, and they're in front of you in prepositional form in the catechism. That is upper T tradition. Um, and so, so really, it's everything Jesus said and did. And lower T tradition are things that can change, things that we're not really sure about. I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary. There's some things in there that we can't really prove, but we can't disprove them either. So the church is open and says it could be, it, could, it might not be, it, but we're not going to make a firm statement on it. Um, yeah. Mary, I think it's important if you could explain to the group the difference between worship and adoration and honor and veneration we have between Mary and Father. Right, right. Yeah, only God is worthy of worship. Right? There's, there's, you know, there's worship, there's adoration, and there's honor. Um, and Mary and the saints really are to honor. Kind of like a I think it's so interesting when we, we think about every who's been to Washington D.C. I mean, how I mean, is that not the place of statues and not a religious one? Okay, you go around there, you see Lincoln, you see Jefferson, you see monuments that are built in the name of people, but then people are upset that the Mother of God has a place of honor. You know, a simple virgin who said yes, who spent her whole life trying to hide her son from people killing him, um, and, you know, watched her son die. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, you just think about it. Um, but we just, I think we get tied up sometimes um, and don't think of things just simply, reasonably, um, as it relates to, to Mary. Do you want to say something more about honor and um, worship? I mean, I think you hit it. I mean, it's got to be emphasized that people think we worship Mary. Yes. Unfortunately, I think sometimes, though, some Catholics kind of um, do kind of live out their faith in a sense of um, that looks like worship sometimes. And it's sometimes it's cultural, sometimes it's ignorance. Um, and so it looks sometimes like we're worshiping. Um, but you know, I, I do think that there's just something so special about Mary. And my prayer for each of you is that you really do kind of uh, grow to love her. And, and we'll talk more about that. Um, I've had so many Protestant, former Protestant um, instructors that 
have really been wounded, cut to the heart when they recognize that really Jesus calls all of us to take Mary into our homes. Like, we're called to do that. Jesus called us to do that. From the cross, you know, he looked down at the beloved disciple, and that, that terminology for John is actually intentional. It didn't say John was called to take Mary into It said the beloved disciple, whom we all are. And he said to the beloved disciple, Behold your mother. And from that moment on, he took her into his home. And when one of my, um, John Burns and I, he's a great speaker, and he's an author, he teaches at Franciscan University, Stu Williams. I mean, every time he tells that story, he just cries. I mean, and he said, The first time I heard that, I just said, Wow, I have really neglected an essential part of a crisis. And that is, you know, the, the personal encounter with Mary. And again, we need to kind of know the difference. Another really simple example. Who has pictures of their family in their home? Okay, everybody's got pictures. My father passed away when I was 29 years old, so it's been, it's been a long time. I can still smell my father. You ever have, have some, somebody like that in your life where you just, um, you wore that old spice. <laughs> but anyway, it always smelled good on him. But anyway, it still um, smells good. But it does still smell good. It's like it's just one of those old-fashioned dad things. Um, but you know, I have pictures of my dad in my home, right? I do not mistake the picture of my dad for my dad, right? I know the difference. You know, um, I don't take the picture out to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'll have conversations, but, um, but you know, I mean, I just think, again, you know, just to kind of use those common sense um, thoughts. And so when we have a statue of someone, um, when we have a picture, that's why we have so many images, you know. The idea of having images of God, images of Jesus Christ, images of Mary and the saints, that was actually, there was a war in the 800s about that. Um, and the church said, look, God became man, so we could see him, so we could have a visual of him. He took on human form, and so it's okay, you know, to have images. And his saints and the people that have lived a life worthy of him are really his handiwork. And so when we honor them, we honor him, we honor his work. All of us are created by him. And so, so there's so much of that that I think if we just look at it just kind of in a reasonable way, um, it can make it easier for us. Okay, perpetual virginity of Mary. We believe that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. What? Oh my goodness. So, we believe that Mary was a virgin before she conceived. I think everybody believes that, right? Everybody that's a Christian that claims a Christian. It's pretty clear. An angel came to a virgin named Mary. The Isaiah prophecies, you know. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so, prior to the birth of Jesus, I think it's pretty, um, pretty accepted that Mary was a virgin. And actually, it shouldn't just be accepted. It's got to be demanded. Because Mary's 
virginity tells us that Jesus comes from the Father in a total way. If Mary was not a virgin, there would be questions, right? And this is why we know in Luke's Gospel when it says, witnesses from the beginning tell us the story of Mary. Nobody else can tell us that, right? Nobody else can tell us that. This is a great, um, this is a very great uh, line here from Ezekiel. It says, this gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered it, therefore it shall remain shut. Mary was espoused to the Holy Spirit. She belonged to him. Monogamy was the law. And so she belonged to God. And what we're going to find is that Mary actually had a sense of this in her own life. And I, I want to explain that to you as, as we go on. Remember when I talked about what original sin does to us? Original sin fragments. It separates us from ourselves. When you sin, you feel bad inside, right? It's just You're like not yourself. It screws up relationship with other people. Fragmentation between yourself, between you and other people, between you and God. Sin fragments. People who are holy are integral. They're integrated. Um, there is no fragmentation. They are whole. That's where the word holy comes from. And so Mary recovers the integrity that all of us really were called to have from the very beginning. And her virginity actually proclaims that in a very beautiful way. So we believe in the virgin birth. Luke's gospel proclaims it. Um, just as they were delivered to us by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. That's what Luke is saying to Theophilus, who was probably supporting him in his ministry. He's like, I'm going to give you an orderly account, and I've got witnesses from the beginning. So I've been talking to people who know, okay? Not just a whistleblower. <laughs> So Mary is a witness that Jesus comes from the Father in a total way. Okay? The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a virgin, and the virgin's name was Mary, Luke. Now it's interesting. This is kind of where it gets interesting. This is where we read the scriptures and we really don't read the scriptures. So here we have the angel that says to Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Most High. And Mary says, how can this be? I don't know, man. Mary, you're engaged to be married. You're going to know, man. That's how it's going to be, right? I mean, isn't that what Mary kind of should have been thinking? But see, what the early church fathers say, no. See, Mary always had a sense that she was actually made to be consecrated to God. So Mary's really asking the angel, is how can I be both virgin and mother? How can this be since I do not know man? Now, the angel doesn't say, come on, you're made you're going to be both virgin and mother. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive of the Holy Spirit. This is how you're going to be both virgin and mother. You see, Mary was seeking understanding about what she knew was her call in her life. If you compare that to the conversation that the angel has with Zachariah in Matthew's Gospel. Now, who's Zachariah? Anybody remember? That's right, Elizabeth's husband. Who was the father of whom? John the Baptist, right? So here we have Zechariah, who's a priest. Now Zechariah, so interesting. These holy men, holy righteous men, married to Elizabeth, they're both in their 90s and no children. 
It's a shame. A shaming thing. But he drew the lots to go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice. He goes into the Holy of Holies. This is a scary place. In the Holy of Holies, like if you went into the Holy of Holies, like it was so kind of frightening that you may not make it out because like you're in the presence of God and you're a sinful person, that they would tie a rope on you. So in case something happened to you while you were in there, they could drag you out. Because nobody else could enter in. Only the high priest who drew lots could go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice. So Zechariah goes into the Holy of Holies, and an angel appears to him and says, Your prayers have been heard. A year from now, your wife Elizabeth's going to have a baby. What is Zechariah says? So are you crazy? My wife's 90 and I'm 95. How, you know, how can this be? It seems like he asks the same question that Elizabeth does. But really, he has no faith. Mary had faith seeking understanding. Zacharias said, this can't be, this isn't gonna happen. He's like, I am Gabriel. And I just told you, I stand before the Lord of most high. I, I, you know, I'm the angel Gabriel. He says, you're gonna be mute because of your unbelief until these things come to pass. And Zacharias struck dumb. He says, you're going to have this baby, and you're going to name this baby John. Zechariah comes out. He can't talk. People are like, oh my gosh, he's had a vision. He's making all kinds of gestures. He goes home. Elizabeth's pregnant. Goes through. She gives birth to John. How, who are you gonna, what are you going to name the baby, Elizabeth? Zechariah? Mary, Elizabeth says, the baby's name will be John. What do you mean John? There's nobody in your family named John. Zechariah writes on a tablet. The baby's name will be John. In that minute, his mouth is opened, he's able to speak, and all he does is praise the Lord. But what I want to contrast for you is the response, right? Mary has a sense of what her call is, and she doesn't understand, and so she's seeking understanding. How can I be both virgin and mother? This is how you're going to be both virgin and mother. Let the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will conceive. And have a son, and you will name him of Jesus. So Mary conceives Jesus without losing her virginity. Um, and in terms of the birth of Jesus, you know, if you look at the, the prophecy of the birth of Jesus, this is what it says The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Go back to Genesis 3. What was the consequences for the woman of sin? Pain and childbirth. What causes pain and childbirth? Loss of integrity. A tearing. Fragmentation. And so that consequence happened because of sin. Mary had no sin. So Mary didn't have the consequences of a lack of integrity. And so just as Jesus' conception was miraculous, so too was his birth. And so Mary retained her integrity as a sign of her holiness and purity, parallel to Eve, and a lack of the consequences of original sin. Now I think another question that always comes up at this time is, is well, what about the brothers and sisters of Jesus in the scriptures? How do we explain that? How do we explain Mary's perpetual virginity? If Jesus had brothers and sisters. 
Anybody that's in the room that's um, not a Catholic yet kind of have a sense of that? Sometimes this is one of those things that you study on your own a little bit and you find out. Anybody have a sense of that? This is one of the, the first apologetics that I ever learned. So it's about language again. So in, in, the, in the original language, there's, there's one word for family members, and that family member could be a cousin, it could be a brother, it could be a sister, it could be my sister in Christ, it could be a member of the community that's very close-knit. And so brothers and sisters doesn't necessarily mean that we come from the same nuclear family. And so if you look at um, the Old Testament scriptures, Lot and Abram are known to be uncle and nephew, and yet they're claimed to be brothers in, in one section uh, of sacred scriptures. Uh, Mary of Clopas um, as well. She's said to be a sister of Mary, and actually she was, was her cousin. Epiphanius was a uh, philosopher in the first um, century, and he gives a, a, another option for why there may be brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now, this is one of these little teas that you don't have to you don't have to believe. You can accept it if you want. But he wrote that Joseph, Mary's husband, was actually an older man, and he was actually married before. He married Mary, and he was a widow, and so he had children from another marriage. And so the brothers and sisters of Jesus are actually stepbrothers. Again. We're not sure, but it certainly could be, right? Son of Mary. Jesus is the only person that's identified in sacred scripture as Mary's son. And so even if there's brothers and sisters of Jesus that may be noted, none of them are sons or daughters of Mary. Now some will say, but Jesus is Mary's firstborn son, so there must have been others. Not necessarily. Firstborn son reflects an inheritance status. So the firstborn son was always identified as that because that's the legal inheritance laws that apply to that person. Now, Mary Caprio could have a firstborn son and die in childbirth. She ain't having any more sons or daughters. And so firstborn son doesn't indicate that there's other children after. Okay? So you have to kind of read things. We kind of have assumptions about what certain things mean. And then lastly, um, Christ on the cross. I've already mentioned that Jesus actually gives Mary to John on the cross. In that culture, if Jesus had brothers and sisters, it would be unheard of to give his mother somebody else. Um, he would have given her to, entrusted her to a brother or a sister. Um, but instead, he entrusted her to the beloved disciple, to John and to you and me. Any questions about the perpetual virginity of Mary? Your head's hurting now. Your brain's hurting a little bit. The assumption of Mary. So you can see how these build on each other, right? So the perpetual virginity of Mary flows from her sinlessness, right? The consequences of, of the, second, um, the second doctrine on Mary. And this flows as well. The assumption of Mary. We believe that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven 
at the moment of her remission, her falling asleep, or her death. Because really, we don't even know if Mary died. There's like no record of Mary's death. The Eastern Church calls it Mary's dormition, a falling asleep of Mary. Um, and so there's, there's, no, there's no record of, of Mary um, dying. And so what are the, what, how, why does somebody die? They die because of sin. The wages of sin are death. If Mary didn't have any sin, um, then she's not going to die. She's going to be assumed into heaven, body and soul. The fathers of the church, again, see the assumption of Mary as fitting to the mother of God. This was a dogma that was proclaimed in, in 1950. And it was actually a dogma that really came from the people. It's following the, the World Wars, the Second World War. And the people really asked the church, we need hope. We need hope that Mary's, Mary's assumed into heaven, and that's going to be our lot. We want this dogma to be proclaimed. And so it was, it was something that's been reflected in the art of the church, um, the early church fathers, um, and it relates to her integral virginity, her association with Christ as the new Eve, her unparalleled fullness of grace. But the one reason that really got me, because I know this was really the hardest dogma for me to, to kind of get, I said to a pastor from Prince of Peace, I said, you know, Father John, I just don't get this one. How do you, how do you accept this idea that Mary was a body and soul and He said, well, that's easy. There was never a body. And if there was a body, we would have a church built on it. We would have Mary's like fragments all over the world. If, if there was a body, because we're crazy Catholics, and we, we do that kind of thing. And that really made a lot of sense to me. I mean, we've got the Peter and Paul Basilica. We've got Lateran, St. John Lateran. We've got, you know, all these places that are built on over the tombs of, of our great saints. And really, there is no place where we say that Mary was actually and that's pretty amazing because she's always really been honored um, since, the, since the early church. The final um, doctrine is Mary, Mother in the Order of Grace. And I think this is one that most people feel pretty comfortable with. Mary is not our mother in the order of biology, right? Everybody understands that. We did not come directly from Mary biologically, physiologically. But because um, Jesus was her son, and we become adopted sons and daughters of the Father. We become brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, and Mary is our mother. And so she does what any good Jewish mother does for her children. She intercedes on our behalf. She prays for us. Um, and when we encounter her, she says what she said to the wine stewards at the wedding feast of Canaan, do whatever he tells you. Right? So she intercedes on our behalf. And I think that's that's probably the most beautiful um, part of the doctrine of Mary. She's always working for our benefit to get to know the Lord a little bit better. What happened at the wedding feast of Canaan? They ran out of wine, right? They ran out of wine. What's the catastrophe for a Jewish wedding? Because they go on for weeks, right? Or at least days. They ran out of wine, and they don't go to Jesus. They go to Mary. And they say, we have no wine. And so Mary takes the problem of the couple. She doesn't try to fix it, but she brings it to the feet of the one she knows can. And she says, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman. So now we have a reminder of, he's calling his mother woman, okay? You know, we should hark back to Genesis 3.15. I will place enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Woman, what is this to do with me? 
do whatever he tells you. See, what he was saying to Mary is, if I do this, this is his first miracle, if I do this, everything changes. I begin my walk to the cross. I no longer will be following you. You will be following me. Fill the jars up to the top. Taste the wine. It's the best wine. Right? A prefigurement of the Eucharist. Of the, the wine and the, the bread that leads to everlasting life. They're at a wedding feast, right? The wedding feast of the Lamb that all of us are called to. So as a mother of the church, um, you know, we call Mary the mother of the church. This is often kind of confusing for people. Why do we call Mary the mother of the church? Because the church is the body of Christ. And Mary is the mother of Christ, who is certainly a body, but he's a person. So she's the mother of the church. The birth of the church happened on the cross when that centurion stabbed the side of Jesus Christ and blood and water came out. So think about this. Blood and water comes out of the side of Christ. That's the birth of the church. Mary is the new Eve. The first Eve came from the side of Adam, from the heart of Adam. Mary is the mother of the church, and she too is born from the side of Christ. And so all of these images of Mary in the church and Christ on the cross, all of them help us to reflect deeply um, on who Jesus is, who the church is, who Mary is in relation to all of those really important um, dimensions. No one is closer to the Holy Spirit than Mary. She was chosen by him to bring Christ into the world. This was according to God's design. I mean, I think a lot of us could say, man, you could have done it different way. Yeah, he could have. Um, but he didn't. And so Mary um, uniquely participates in the mediation of Christ. She is the queen mother. And this is kind of another really beautiful image of, of Mary. We look back at the Old Testament. Who was the queen mother? Who was the queen? Who was the queen? The queen was the mother of the king. It wasn't the wife of the king. It was the mother of the king. You know why? Because the king had 800 wives. And who would be queen, right? So it was the mother of the king that was the queen. And so too it is um, with Mary. That's why we call Mary the queen of heaven. She's the queen mother's queen mother. Um, and so all of us are, are called um, to get to know her a little bit better. I have a great little um, flick I want to show you on the Immaculate Conception. And so um, I want you to ponder that a little bit more. And I know you probably have questions you haven't even like formulated yet. But please do, because we want to answer them. So write anything down that you're thinking of, and we'll go ahead and watch this short clip by Bishop Barron on the Immaculate Conception. Cindy, you want to get those lights?
February of 1858, the six members of the Subiru family lived in this tiny one-room hovel. It was called the Kasho because it was a converted prison. The city officials of Lourdes evidently felt that the conditions here were too harsh and primitive for the prisoners. Really, it was little more than a cave. On February the 11th, 1858, the eldest Subiru child, Bernadette, made her way from this place to Masadiel, a garbage dump on the outskirts of the little town of Lourdes. She had come there with one of her sisters and a friend to look for wood with which to heat her family's home. While her friend scampered away, Bernadette, due to her asthma, stayed behind near the gum of the fast-flowing river. She felt a puff of wind and heard a sound. When she turned to see what had caused the stir, she spied a beautiful young woman, clothed in white and with a yellow rose on each of her feet. Instinctually, Bernadette reached for her rosary, and the woman, who had a spectacular rosary of pearl, began to pray along with her. When Bernadette finished the prayer, the woman smiled and disappeared. Bernadette felt compelled to return to Masabiel, so the next day she came to the spot with a few of her friends. She again saw the lady, but this time the mysterious visitor spoke. Would you do me the favor of returning for the next 15 days? And then she had a message for the priests. Build a temple on this site and let processions come. Gospel, 
Mary sings the praises of the God who cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Bernadette, who was herself something of a cave girl, was visited by the Immaculate Conception, by the Queen of Heaven, who received the message of the angel in a hovel and gave birth to the Son of God in a cave. Yeah, so there was never a body found in Mary. 
Like there's no record of her death. So like, there's, just nothing. there's nothing. There's no body. And so, um, so we believe because of her lack of sin, she was taken up. Now she did not ascend to the Father on her own power. She was taken up like Elijah was taken up. And so we believe that Mary and Jesus are the only people in heaven that actually have their bodies. We get our bodies back at the final coming of Christ, the resurrection of the bodies. And when we, at the immediate judgment, we are judged, we will be in eternal heaven or eternal damnation, but it's our souls that will be there. The final coming of Christ, we will be resurrected, we will be you know, reunited with our bodies wherever we live. And that's when all of our deeds are known to everyone. You'll know who's been praying for you, who's prayed for you. You'll know all the good deeds, all the not so good things. I mean, we're going to be, we're going to have full knowledge, you know, in that moment. Um, and we'll be reunited. We'll be most fully ourselves as we receive our bodies back because we're, we're radically, that's what we're meant for. To be fully integrated. No sin. Just love. Just love. As long as we're in the right place. All right, let's take some time in, um, be in our groups. Um, I don't know how many uh, folks I have. Just want to make sure there's a. You, you guys will come over here. That'd be great. And then I just want to make sure there's a leader at every table. I can certainly join them. There's a leader here. There's a leader here. There's a leader here. There's a leader here. Leader here. Leader here. And leader here. I think we're good. You guys will just come up. Mark, and we'll come up to one of the tables. And, Everybody have their small